Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. One of my favorite comic book movies of all time, if not one of my favorite movies of all time, is the original Superman. So I am really, really stoked to talk to Jack O'Halloran. Let's get started right away. On mic today, we have Jack O'Halloran. How are you doing this fine day, sir? Doing the best I can with it. Let me get away with <laughs> I like the attitude there. Uh, my audience is mostly going to know you for your appearance in the Superman movies, but you've been in a lot of movies, and you have a prestigious career as a fighter as well. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. Okay. Where do you want to start? Well, um, our, our mutual friend told me you have a lot of stories about the Superman appearances, so could you let me know from your own words what that was like? Superman movies were, you know, it was... Um, you walk into something like that once in a lifetime, you know. It was a phenomenal situation. It was a, a brilliant cast. Donner was a brilliant director. Uh, the whole idea of doing uh, the very first superhero America ever had was an intriguing idea. Uh, the character, when we discussed the character with Don, with Richard Donner, uh, it totally intrigued me because... Uh, Doing somebody that was a mute, uh, I would. Jackie Gleason was a good friend of mine, and and he did a picture called Gigo and won an Oscar for playing a deaf dumb mute. And I said, if I ever get an opportunity to do a character like that, where you're using body language and facial expressions, I would embrace it. And uh, when they offered me non, you know, I thought about it, and uh, the character Zod was a vicious general. And Sarah was a man-eater. So somebody had to relate to the younger audience, like a child, you know, children. So I played this brutish guy like a child, learning how to work his eyes and different child mannerisms. And and it worked very well. It did. Somebody somebody had to relate to that part of the audience. And and I figured uh, non was a good idea to do that, you know. So I had people used to come up to me at the, the Comic-Con and stuff, and they would, first of all, they would say, the first time when I went to a Comic-Con, people come up and say, oh, my God, you actually talk. <laughs> you know, and uh, none of the people would say to me, oh, your character scared me to death, but I love the character so much because it was like a, a warm child, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so it, evidently what we tried out worked out, and it worked very well. It did work very well, and I actually was always curious if it would feel restrictive being a character who couldn't talk. And uh, like, so you, you really hit that right on the head there. No, I embraced it. I, I wanted it. I wanted to do that. It was, uh, it was an opportunity for me to like, it shows your acting talent, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What you can do with yourself and, and to take this brutish person and turn it into that, you know, it just, it worked out very well. I did another picture of hero in the terror and, 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 and the character was kind of a, uh, um, uh, an ogre, but a, a very um, uh, same type of deal, almost. Just, but, but not as more, a little more vicious than Nan was. Are but there it, any other? Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. But it worked out very well as well. Yeah. One of the best pictures Chuck Norris ever did. I'm sure he'd be glad to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah, he was quite good. It was, it was, it was a, It's just sad they didn't promote it properly, but 
It was a pretty good movie. Yeah. Uh, so are there any other roles that you've had where you really felt like you were stretching yourself or, or getting some really meaty material? I, you know, I'll tell you, the first picture I did uh, was uh, Farewell, My Lovely with Robert Mitchum. Uh, and that's my favorite performance. And, you know, I, uh, Mitchum was uh, Mitchum was my teacher and he was my, you know, he, he we became very close and he, he actually uh, helped me a lot because I had never been on set before. I'd never done anything in the, in the industry before other than some commercials that I did when I was boxing and stuff. But as far as acting is concerned, and, uh, uh, and when I did the movie and friends of mine from the East coast, uh, called me on the phone. He said, they paid you to do that film. Cause it was just like me in the streets, you know, mm-hmm. how the character was cut. So I, it worked out very well. And, and she Mitchum taught me that, you know, just take the character and stick them in yourself and walk down the street just like that person and be you. And and you'll do fine. You know, and he, um, first day I ever went to work with him, we were on the bottom of a set of stairs and uh, it was the first shot that we were going to do in the movie. And, and he said to me, uh, he said, have you read that script, kid? And I said, read it. I read your part, my part, Charlotte Ramping's part. I know everybody's part. And he said, good, throw it in the trash can. <laughs> don't let me catch you doing what hundreds of people in this industry do acting just be yourself and from that point on he just walked me right through it i mean i i remember we did the very first shot and we were standing up in front of the camera and he said to me you see all those guys behind the camera back there yiping at everybody and all that stuff i said yeah he said don't worry about them a little bit. He said, when that red light goes on, they all work for you, kid. You're the one on celluloid, not them. And I wasn't worried about them anyway. <laughs> but he, <laughs> but he, and we did the very first shot, and they were moving the cameras around. And I said to him, what's the deal here? What, what, what are we doing? He said, you really don't know. I said, no. I said, I, that's why I'm asking you. He said, that's it, kid. That's the whole enchilada. That's, you know, this is what it's about. I said, that's all there is to this? He said, yeah. I said, oh, man, I'm a star. <laughs> <laughs> and that became a, like, like a tagline for the, for the film. It was a, Robert, Robert was a very uh, unique individual. But it, it was a great way to enter the business, you know, and it just mm-hmm. uh, went from one picture after another. Did King Kong and with Jesse Lang, and, and it just, uh, and things worked out very well. Was it hard going from athletics to acting? Because there have been a lot of people who have done that, and some have done it better than others. I find it easy because of the timing. You know, as a fighter and as a football player, you learn timing, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I found that that was an asset. And I found that as an asset when I did commercials, the first time I ever did a commercial. We did the Royal Crown Cold commercials when I lived in San Diego and I was California heavyweight champion. And, you know, the... Um, so I, that was my first exposure. But I, I, I think the timing uh, is in your head like a clock, you know. And, uh, and, I, and I also think that, you know, being um, if you if you've excelled in, in an athletic deal, you know how to project yourself. And I think that's an asset as well. You know, like I asked Mitchum one time, I said, um, what is the definition of a star, man? What, what is a star? And he looked at me kind of quirky and he said, you know, Jack, he said, it's a, it's one word called presence. Either you have it or you don't. It's something they cannot teach you. It's the Camry that loves you or it doesn't. 
you either he said you know it's like you go to a movie and you see Marlon Brando in a film or any film that Brando's in when you're walking out of the theater you just you know oh boy Marlon was great at this he was great at that you know it doesn't even care what the character's name is mm-hmm. but you have another actor that like uh, like Bill Holden that who was a fine actor but he didn't have the presence that these guys had you know you walk out of the theater and say boy this guy what was his name you know what was his name and, and you know so but people like Gregory Peck and you know and, and uh, uh, there were a lot of great actors that had just dynamic presence, you know, and Brando. So Brando was amazing. Working with Brando was, was a lot of fun. I liked Marlon. Marlon and I got on very well. Ah, any particular instance that you'd want to tell us about or? <laughs> I'll tell you, I was, uh, uh, I went down the set to watch him working one day because I enjoyed watching him work. Then we were, we were, he was doing uh, a scene that, it was away from us. It was solely on him. And so I was sitting down and watching. We were all down there working anyway. So I was sitting watching him. And, and I saw him do something that I, and, you know, Brando had cue cards everywhere, all around him. I mean, it was unbelievable. But, and he went, went into a, a shot and uh, and he was doing he was doing the monologue. And the, and the cinematographer said, oops, got to do it again. I got a glitch or something in the camera. And the guy, we got to set it up again. And Marlon says, "You don't set nothing up. Fix the camera." And he turned around, and he told, and he, and I heard him t- when he had his back to the camera. He said, "You got it fixed." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, Marlon." And he turned back into the shot, and just finished it. And he came off the set, and I said to him, "I guess a lot of people would be a little worried about asking this, but what's the deal with the cue cards, man?" I said, mm-hmm. "You're so bored with the industry that you had to." No, no, he said, uh, I started that with uh, Mutiny on the Bounty. He said, I didn't want to make it look like I, I had read the script or, or studied something. I wanted to look like I was taking the words out of the air. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, man, give me a break. And he, and he was a great Shakespearean actor. And he sat there and he ripped off a couple parables of Shakespeare. Really dynamic, man, you know, and, uh, and said to me that. You must know word for word. This stuff, piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I mean, you can't really just flub Shakespeare. You can't ad lib it. It no, is what it is. That's what he said to me. He said, "You know, you that you must know word for word, kid." He said, "This is this stuff, piece of cake." You know, <laughs> and he was such a great. I mean, people like him and, and Mitchum and uh, you know and some actors I worked with, Omar Sharif and stuff, and Jimmy Green Hackman. When they walk on the set, you hear pins drop, man. You know the people respect their their talent and stuff so much, and they and they they're no nonsense actors. You know the older actors were really no nonsense people. They when they came to work, they came to work. There was no crying and moaning like some of these young kids that do this stuff. You know it was a it was a you know a labor of love. I mean I mean I've seen Mitchum uh, why just. <laughs> He'd be drinking, waiting to go on set or something. And I'd say, man, how, you, how can you go out? He said, Shh. the makeup guy, was, which was an Oscar winner, was his makeup person, came in, gave him a couple shots of Visine in his eyes, and he'd walk out on that set, boy, like, Shh, like no tomorrow. You know, just whack out a performance. They're just amazed. I, I sit there and say, wow, man, that's, that's incredible. But he, he lived it. He lived it. You know, he was, a, he was just a great actor, you know? I... You touched on something there that I don't know, maybe a, maybe it's just me, but I really think that if you look at movies before a certain time, let's just pick 1980 as a 
arbitrary date. It's like movies before then, they had a certain style to them, a certain quality that I have a hard time seeing today. Do you see it the same way? Yeah. In fact, we're, we're trying to do something about it right now. Is that okay. What the, the problem is that the studios are run by MBAs. They, they have no creativity. Mm-hmm. And it's very sad. You know, the old studio owners, they, they, they were creative. You know, and they and they put together creative teams, and, and they didn't do uh, patch movies together to see how much money they can make. Mm-hmm. It was how how can I entertain the audience, you know? And and like the actors, were it was a whole different kettle of fish. It wasn't about well, I'm going to make thirty million dollars, and who cares? I'll just walk through this. And too many actors walk through things today, like you know, they just walk on, walk off. That's they don't put so. I, I I loved working with with Hackman. Hackman was a great actor, and and, and he was a no nonsense guy. You know, you, you walked out on a set, and if the director started moving people around, Gene would say, "Hey, have you not done your homework, son? You know, I'll tell you what. I'll be in my trailer when you get done playing the chess over here. Call me and let me know when you're ready to go to work." And Mitchell was that way, and Brando was that way. You know, and uh, and a guy I really I really had a lot of fun with was Omar Sharif. Who was a brilliant actor, you know, and, and Jimmy Coburn, you know, I, I was very lucky to work with a lot of very good actors that, from old school. So I learned that way of, of, of doing the business. And uh, and I, I feel bad for, you know, that they allow pictures to be made uh, with people walking through them and, and they overcast them sometimes. They, sometimes they put people in because the agency says, well, if you want to star, you got to take these five people as well. And they stuff people in films that don't belong there. And, you know, they're miscast in, in roles and stuff. And, and, and that's sad because you're, yeah. you know, the public is there to be entertained. So that's what it's all about. You know, it's about me doing my job and, and, and entertaining you, you know. And, I, and I've tried to do that with every role I've ever done. And I've, I've been pretty successful with it. You know, I've gotten a lot of great accolades for things I've done. So. I'm hearing a real love for movies and a real love for the craft in that. And, and the guys you're talking about working with are, are legends in their own right. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it was a pleasure doing that, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, I have a couple of projects I'm getting ready to do now. I've written a book that we're getting ready to make a film out of and, and the casting of that's very important. And I've got an old, I have a, a script I wrote 40 years ago. Jeez. God, time goes by. Um, there was a picture done in the 30s called The Informer by mm-hmm. John Ford, mm-hmm. won four Oscars. Victor McLaughlin was the first character actor to win a leading Oscar, leading man Oscar. And when I got in the industry, my agent and I were talking about, well, you know, what, what I was going to do with my career. And, and I said, well, I, uh, I don't want to do one of these, you know, walk on dummy shots and stuff. I want to be able to do something and create something and create a character and make something work. And he said, well, well, I said, I'd like to follow the path of Victor McLaughlin. And he said, well, they don't do movies like that anymore. And I said, well, I'll redo the informer. (laughs) (laughs) You're not an actor six months and already going to be a writer and a producer. He said, you know, so, and I did, I went and I, I went over to England. I met uh, Liam O'Flaherty who wrote the book. And uh, and I talked to Mitchum and he showed me how to write the script and and I wrote a great script and it was uh, it came out extremely well and, and I just have sat on it because I had Mitchum going to do one role one time and this and that but the, the deals weren't correctly the way I wanted them done because 
I, you have to control the product. And if you give it over to somebody and they just makeshift it, you're losing value on something that could be very good, you know. So we're getting ready to do it now. And we're going to Daniel Day-Lewis and a few other people that are really, I feel, you know, unbelievable actors. And, and they love Ireland and we're going to have a good time. With it. We were, the first film was done in America, all dark and at night. Started mm -hmm. opening, we opened up the book and we're going to go to Ireland and open up the greenery, the Wicklow Mountains. And it's really going to come out very well. And now I'm going to do Jippo Nolan role, so I guess I'll get an Oscar too. <laughs> <laughs> While I'm at it, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Just write it in there. Uh, but that actually sounds like a really fascinating project. And like I said, I, I regret that we don't see more movies done in the classic style. So if anybody's doing it, much less people who have already been in the business, I'm all for that. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I, I just think that, uh, you know, casting is very important when you're doing a film. And, and, and it's uh, and who the writers are and, you know, how they and, and, and the producers, how you approach a film, and you know. And to give it the value that it deserves, you know, you should let it breathe and make. Nobody has a crystal ball, you know, as mm -hmm. to what is going to really uh, be standoutish. But you can take your best shot at putting your components together to try to make it work, you know. And, mm -hmm. and, and I've learned that, you know, I, like we did Farewell with my lovey. It was a, like a, a 2.5 million dollar budget, I believe, and and we had four Oscar winners on the set, you know, the the Gene Dean Talavera's won the Oscar for the Godfather for set design. And uh, John Alonzo was a, was a Oscar winning cinematographer from Chinatown. And, uh, you know, and the makeup guys, uh, Westmore was, was Mitchum's makeup people and they're Oscar winners. And the, the special effects guy was a, an Oscar winner. So, and they all come to work because of Mitchum, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's amazing how the old actors brought out talented people to work with them because they knew it was going to be a no nonsense picture. You know, and and I like to put that value back in today. You know, as much as we can. We got a few pictures we're going to do. I think um, when we do, like Family Legacy. If you enjoyed The Godfather, you're going to love Family Legacy because it's a hundred stories above it. And it's uh, and we're telling the truth. We're telling the truth about the unfolding of a country and 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 the people that helped to make it work. You know, it's not just a a mob picture it's uh you know in the beginning if you sat down and looked at the reality of our society that you know you had the government and uh, industry and unions and organized crime were partners mm -hmm. they all went hand in hand you know you couldn't you couldn't do this without this guy and that without that guy and it was worked in harmony just like you're talking about movies mm -hmm. it was the same thing there was a harmony in the streets and you know when i was a kid growing up in philadelphia we never locked our front door our neighborhoods were safe Mm -hmm. you know, come around burglarizing your house. You could people slept out in their backyards because air conditioning wasn't a uh, wasn't in the deal then. You know, when it was hot in the summertime, people pitched tents in the backyard and slept outside. Nobody ever bothered them. You know, and it's you know, we didn't have drive-by shootings and and all this jazz that's going on today. You know, it was a a much different environment all the way around when when neighborhoods were controlled by certain people. Mm -hmm. and, they helped the police. You know, you wouldn't think of committing crimes in certain areas. Boy, I'll tell you what, it would be a bad idea, you know. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have to worry about the cops. You had to worry about who ran the neighborhood. You know, you wouldn't get away with it. So I, um, we're going we're gonna to do something that, that should have been done a long time ago and tell a lot of truth about a lot of things. And uh, 
And and I think it uh, we're going to do not only film, but we're going to do a television series because there's so much material oh. to cover, you know. And the series will be bigger than The Sopranos or Boardwalk Empire because it'll tell the true unfolding of a, of a, of a country, and, mm-hmm. you know, city to city, and, and not be just focused on one little neighborhood. Yeah, and and The Sopranos, I mean, all, give it all the credit it's due because I remember when that show was really big, but it was still basically a show geared toward entertainment there was a style to it it was uh yeah it wasn't know, really, it wasn't it was a little far-fetched you know right they, but uh, we... they asked me to do that show i remember they came to me to do a character in the show and i turned them down and the guy said well geez you, you're from that world because my father my father was the most prominent italian that ever came into america uh, albert anastasia and he uh so I, it was my world. I lived it when I was younger, still do. And it was a. Uh, so I knew the truth about how things really worked. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And when I saw The Sopranos, it, to me, it was insulting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they came but, to, me to do this role, and I said, I don't think I can do that. And they said, Why? I said, Because you're not telling the truth. Yeah. You're, you're 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 mocking where I come from, and I and I can't allow that. I just won't. Yeah. No, I mean that was made to be pure entertainment but it was simplified what you're talking about is is the reality of what actually happened and the real yeah. drama of real history correct that's what we're going to do and we're, we're going to and we're going to show how things changed and, and, and why they changed and you know and why what was what's for the better and what's for the worst and stuff and uh, you know it, uh, there's a lot of things that that have transpired in our history that uh, shouldn't have happened and, and they happened because People didn't want their partners anymore. The government got too strong in itself. And, you know, it interfered with the unions. It interfered with the streets. It interfered with a lot of things. They wanted to be they wanted to be the boss of everything, almost like socialism, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's sad because you have you have the original mob were never into drugs. Mm-hmm. They when in fact, my father died because he would not allow them to bring that stuff into his arbors. My father controlled all the docks of America. And in The Godfather, when Brando was approached to, to go in the drug business, and he said that if we touch it, it'll be the, you know, our children will touch it, and it'll be the downfall of the families, and I have to decline. I, I just don't, I don't think it's a business that I want to be involved in. And when my father said that, it's when they assassinated him in 1957. And they went to him, and they begged him. They said, Albert, you know, it's it's just... It's only business, you know, it's just a, a very lucrative business. And he said, not a business that we signed up for. I, I don't agree with it. And, you know, I, I think it's uh, I think it's detrimental to our, our families and, and our children, you know. So um, and then after they assassinated him, they were it was the worst mistake they ever made because he was the glue that held everything together. And the Genovese was a wild card. He just the drug business, you know, was was just what my father said it would be. You know, mm-hmm. it, uh, it caused a lot of turmoil. And, and you look in the streets today of all the kids that are, you know, that are into things that they shouldn't be into. Mm-hmm. And, it's a, and it's a sad state of affairs. I mean, it's like you look at families. How many families do you know that actually all sit down and eat dinner together today? Mm-hmm. Not many. When I was a kid, if you didn't sit at the table at six o'clock, you better you better have a damn good reason why you're not there, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and and parents and people looked at each other's eyes, 
So you could tell if somebody was in trouble doing something they weren't supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? And it, uh, so I, I just, it's, it's really sad what's happened to society, to be honest with you. It is. And uh, I was having a chat with somebody earlier today about just the fact that, you know, I, with the internet is a great thing and it gives you and I the chance to have this conversation right now, but it's also divided a lot of communities and people are more worried about the screen in front of them than, you know, the people next door to them. Well, you know, I'll tell you something. I'll show you something really simple. And not very many people will even, even think about this, you know. What was the very pro first prohibition in our country? Alcohol? Nope. Okay, I'm wrong on that. Go back to 1914. There was a thing put in place called the Harrison Act, okay? Okay. And majority of the of, of, of the House and all didn't really approve of it, but they pushed it through. The Harrison Act gave Big Pharma the right to control drugs. Mm -hmm. Okay. And prior to the Harrison Act, you could buy marijuana right across the counter in a drugstore. And and no one ever got no one it wasn't an addictive it wasn't a big deal. You know, mm -hmm. they put, uh, cocaine was in Coca Cola for God's sakes. Mm -hmm. And you had, uh, you know, you, you could buy prescription things across the counter. That, that Okay, so Big Pharma gets involved. And now you have prescriptions for everything. Boom, 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 boom. So then you go back and you look at women, you know, back in the 30s and the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, you know, people got married and, and, and there was a one, the man was the household breadwinner usually. And the women stayed home and they had six, seven, eight children, you know. Some of them five, four, whatever. Big families were produced. And women were very tired, you know, they <clears throat> tired because they didn't all these kids. So <clears throat> doctors were handing out scripts. They were giving them speed to wake up in the morning and volume to go to sleep at night. And what they never told or said to anybody, the doctors, that what this said, this goes into a woman's bloodstream. Now, when you have a child, that child has that in their blood automatically. And addictions were formed. And people, you know, in, in the 70s, it was the early 70s, they did a, a documentary. And it only showed one time. It was called The Littlest Junkie, the New York Hospital had all these babies being born and they were crying and screaming and no one could figure out why they were crying. And one bright doctor said that these children are going through withdrawal. They're coming out of mothers who are addicted to drugs and the child is going through withdrawals and they're getting belly cramps and, and stuff like that. And, and, and it's causing them a lot of pain and distress and they had to do something about it. You know what I mean? And they, they showed that documentary one time on television and never saw it again. Because people, when you're going and getting drugs for this and that and this and that, and even today, they're, now they're coming out with all the CB oil stuff and everything, finding out there's healthier ways of handling things. Mm -hmm. Statin drugs are killing people. Mm -hmm. And they don't care. They don't really care. They'll give you prescriptions, boom, 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 because everybody's making money off of that piece of paper. The pharmaceutical industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Who's going to play with it? Nobody. You know, it's like the cigarette business. You know, cigarettes are, have always been known to be very harmful to your health. Do you know the worst part of a cigarette? 
You know what the I, most harmful thing on a cigarette is? I don't smoke, so I'm 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 kind of in the dark on this. Neither do I. But the most okay. harmful thing on a cigarette is the paper. Sure. Because the the, the the fire, the way it burns so so evenly, you understand? Mm-hmm. The element that does that is arsenic. All right. So you're smoking every time you smoke a cigarette, you're you're taking some partake of arsenic into your body, into your lungs. And people wonder why they get cancer and cancer. You understand me? Mm-hmm. It breaks down your body. There's things, that, but they'll never tell you that because the paper industry is you one of the biggest industries in the country. You'll never hear that said. They'll blame it on the tobacco, on this and that. You know, mm-hmm. you know, it is what it is. It's like these kids that do these vapors, man. Mm-hmm. This vaping thing they're finding out is, is worse than cigarettes. People are getting lung diseases that are just off the charts. You know. And people just turn, you know, the problem, I think, in our society today is that you have two things. There's one word that's missing in society, and it's the word respect. If you don't respect yourself, how can you respect anybody else? Okay? Mm-hmm. That's number one. Number two is people don't talk to each other. You see these kids texting all the time. They never talk to each other. They find each other through computers. They never see people face to face, and they're all of a sudden best friends. So they don't even know who their best friend's with. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense to you? It makes a lot of sense, sure. You know, they don't communicate. It's even like I have I have daughters, and they'll text, and I say, you know, pick a phone up and say hello. What's this text business? Mm-hmm. You know? My fingers are too big. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've hit the point now where I, if some my phone rings, I assume something's wrong. Because if, if everything was okay, you probably would have texted me. So it's that's... And that's new to me. I mean, that's 10 years ago. I would have been fine with getting a phone call. But now it's like, oh, man, what happened? I'm getting a phone call. (laughs) You see what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Changes everybody's thinking around. You know, it's just it's Mm -hmm. incredible. You know, it's it's, and I, you know, we 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 lost a lot of our society when they put welfare and stuff in place. You know, and it it, Roosevelt had the right idea. If you want to collect a check from me, go out and pick up the trash, fix the streets, do something, do a job. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, people, but when, when, when you separate your neighbors, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, you know, you jump across the banister, and people next door, everybody helped each other out. Today, people don't even know their neighbors. They don't even talk to each other. No. And you have separation when somebody's the government, you know, you say something, well, the government takes care of me. Well, the government will give me a check. Well, you know, they, they, when they first started with with welfare and then welfare got so out of hand, each state was going to pay their welfare themselves. So they went to, I remember in Illinois, this, there was a guy who made an example of this, that uh, they took a woman and, they, and, they, and the woman, they said to her, you know, you need to come in and learn how to work. And she said, well, I, well, I have these children at home. He said, well, we're going to arrange for daycare. Well, I don't have the wor- proper wardrobe. Well, we're going to give you clothes. Well, I can't see too well. We gave you glasses. Every excuse that she used not to go to learn to, to a class to learn how to work, they, they fixed, okay? And they got her into a classroom. And she sat in the classroom for two days, and then she just turned around and got up and walked down. The guy said, where, where are you going? She said, I cannot learn how to work. And what do I need to do that for? The government takes care of me. And the guy said, well, this is what I'm trying to explain to you. If you don't learn how to work or get some kind of a job, they're going to cut your welfare off. 
No, no, the government will never do that. Well, that's socialism, my friend. When you rely totally on the government taking care of you, that's socialism. That's not the democracy that we were raised in. One of the greatest things about America and why everybody came here is because we were free and, and we had democracy here. You know, people could get a job and they could make a fortune. They could do things that can they could turn their lives around. You know, the difference between immigration today and immigration when when my parents and, and, and your parents and godparents came into this country, they wanted to be Americans. When they put their hand up, it was in English. Now, multiple languages. They take their pledges with multiple languages. And, and people come into the country today and they rape it. You know, look at, look, look at what, what you're getting. Free cell phones, free education, free rent and all this stuff. They're giving money to people. And there's people who were born in America right here that don't have those privileges. You ever stop to think of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I look at that and I say, well, you know, this is unbelievable. And I, I was, I, I said 20 years ago, put the borders down, shut them, shut the borders. You know, let's get our country, let's get stand up and have America speak for itself again. Where's, where's our, where's our vo reason why they have so many problems with elections? Because people aren't voting. The social media is unbelievable how people sit in front of their televisions and get addicted every day watching programs that are geared just to sell you something. Mm -hmm. They're geared to make awards. They don't tell you the truth about what's really going on in the world. I can sit in my house and make four phone calls to different parts of the world and find out all the news that I want to know what's going on really, really going on in the world. Mm -hmm. You understand? I do. It's, it's just really, and I've been fortunate enough, I've lived in, in different parts of the world for periods of time. And, and I've seen how the changes even in Europe have come around, you know. I remember London when nobody, even gangsters didn't carry guns. The Bobbies never carried guns because they had a different kind of crime element there. And, and, and people ran their manners. You know, the, the, the hoodlums each had their section of the city and they ran their manners. You didn't commit certain crimes in their manners, the same as when we were kids in, our, in, in America. You understand? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now there's guns everywhere. Even, I mean, all the cops in London, they're on every corner. They've got machine guns. and It's like Germany. It's, it's unbelievable. You know, you see, to watch these changes is, you know, it's frightening. What we're doing to ourselves, that's the, that's the kicker of it. Mm -hmm. you, you have a small group of people controlling a mass, man. That's, that's tight. You know? Yeah, it's very hard to look at the world around us now and think we're moving in the right direction. I I know people that, that feel that way, and I want to believe them, but I, I have a hard time seeing the sense of it. Well, there's people afraid to come out of their houses. Mm -hmm. There's people don't. There's people, people building houses with walls around them and stuff. You know, they're, they're, they have they're, they're they're living on fear. That's not a way to live your life. That's just, that's sad. Boy. I have a lot of empathy for that. You know, I, yeah. I know my own self, I'm 76 years old, I'll be 77 next month. And I've lived through a whole bunch of stuff and, and, and seen realities of things. And that's why we're doing these books. You know, like the first book I wrote is, goes from my father's death to Kennedy's death. And I tell the truth about the Kennedy assassination. Mm -hmm. And there is a truth. And, and no one's ever said what the truth is. You know, they've, they've told so many lies in reference to why he died, how he died, 
and the whole nine yards, and, and it was all fed by social media. Mm-hmm. You understand? I mean, it took it took 30 years before they actually told the truth that Jack Kennedy was shot three times, not once. He was shot in his lower back, he was shot in his throat, and he was shot in his head. Three different bullets, three different people. And why couldn't they have told you that day one? Because they covered everything up. Mm-hmm. His whole autopsy was covered up. Mm-hmm. All the interns in Dallas, Texas, were were all interns. All the doctors that handled his autopsy were in, and they come out 15 years later and admitted that. Then they hustled the body up to, to Washington. But the key element in that whole deal is the number one cop in the country when Jack Kennedy died was his brother Bobby. He was the attorney general. Bobby was his brother's second skin. Everywhere he went, Bobby used to go. Mm-hmm. Okay? Four people went to see Bobby before Jack Kennedy went to Dallas, and they told him, please do not let your brother go to Texas. The animosity is atrocious. One of them was Adlai Stevenson, who was a pretty prominent politician. He said, they were, I was in Houston last week, and they were spitting on me. And, and, and Bobby didn't go before, he didn't go during, and he never went afterwards to Dallas. Strike you kind of funny? Just a bit. And Jack Kennedy would not have lived his term out. He was dying of four different diseases. They used to shoot him up every day because of the, the worst disease he had was Addison's disease. There's a whole deterioration of your back, your, your whole spinal kind. So he was in a lot of pain all the time. Mm-hmm. And I knew Jack Kennedy. I, I kind of liked him. He was a pretty good politician. But his father controlled too much of him. So if you were going to say who's the one person responsible for Jack Kennedy's death, you got to look right at his father. Because he had so many enemies. And there were so many people that they blamed, the, the mafia and, and, and the CIA and, and the unions for Jimmy Hoffa. And, and, you know, and, and they're looking around to blame everybody but where it came from. The bankers of Geneva were not happy people with Joseph Kennedy. He made enemies everywhere he went in his life. He backstabbed everybody. Good example, right in Texas, you know, you, <clears throat> when he was running, when he was running for nomination in California, and his father told Gene Connor out of Chicago, who he was under thumb to, we have this all wrapped up, no problem. We've got all the electoral votes. He'll get nominated without a problem. And I said, okay. Two days into the nomination, he ran to them. He said, we have a slight problem here. We're, we're running short on, on, like he said, I thought you had it all covered. No, we don't. So Gene Connor made a couple phone calls, and Illinois, for the very first time, went Democrat. And two other states around it. Go into the third day, and they're still behind. And there's only one state that can put them across the line on the electoral votes, West Virginia. West Virginia had an enormous amount of electoral votes because of the money down there, the coal runs and all that stuff. They had, they, they had a lot of voting power. Giancana made a couple phone calls. We owned casinos all through West Virginia, the illegal casinos. Some debt was excused. West Virginia raised their hand. Boom. Jack Kennedy gets nominated. When he's in California, J.H.L. Hunt takes a suitcase full of money and runs out to California and gives it to Joe Kennedy and says, this is to get Johnson as your running mate. Lyndon Johnson. 
Jack Kennedy becomes president of the United States. If you recall or look in history, it was a neck and neck race between him and Nixon. Tighter than tight as a drum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There were people in Cicero, <laughs> Cicero, Illinois, who voted 20 times and they were dead. You hear what I said to you? I, I've heard that. And it's a true story. And not only there, but a couple other places. Okay. So Jack Kennedy becomes president. Absolute. Right. They, they, you know, when, when, the, when, when the race first started, you know, Meyer Lansky went to Sam Giancana. He said, well, what are you doing? He said, we already own Nixon. What do we need Kennedy for? Well, his father promised us both his ears. We, we, we'd have a good in at the White House. Wow. All bullshit. Because as soon as he became president, his father did this. He said, first, first of all, they were supposed to, Bobby was supposed to be an ambassador to Ireland. Now, what they do, they turn around and made him attorney general. And his father turned around and said, put all my good friends in jail. And Bobby went after everybody. Right? Mm-hmm. Then he turns around and he says to his son, see those guys down there in Texas, all those oil guys? They're making a fortune on surplus oil, and there's no taxes or anything on it. You need to levy a tax on that. Well, that tax cost them like $200 million a year. You think they were happy puppies? No. The CIA in the Bay of Pigs, Joe Kennedy told his son, those soldiers don't need bullets in their rifles because you don't want any accidents to happen and start a big, a big war. All those kids got slaughtered in that water. Mm-hmm. Shot down like pigs, man. And very angered the CIA. A lot of their friends got killed there. Yeah. You understand? Mm-hmm. So you took, put together the pieces of the puzzle and how many people were angry at certain people. The mm-hmm. Warren Commission was a joke. It was done by uh, the Yale kids. They put together the Warren Commission. It was, it was a total joke. Oswald never pulled the trigger on anything. He was a patsy, total. Mm-hmm. There were 13 shots fired at Dealey Plaza that day. There were 30 people there that could have hit anybody. You got the president of the United States in an open car going by the bird building, the book depository, mm-hmm. with open windows, people walking around, and the president below you. And then you had the, the train station where the guys came off the, uh, off the and walked over the bridge that the car was going to go under. And one of them was Woody Harrelson's father. was a hit guy from New Orleans. I've been there. It's a perfect setup. It took them, it took them four months to reroute that. Down Dealey Plaza. Mm-hmm. You know, and if they were going to kill Kennedy from the bird building, it would have been as he was running straight at it before he made the turn to go down Dealey Plaza. Mm-hmm. You understand? Mm-hmm. Anybody knows anything about rifles or weaponry, okay? You had, uh, supposedly, Oswald had a mail-ordered rifle. Bolt-action mail-ordered rifle, Okay. Four shots were shot in 40, four, in 28 seconds. Now, if I'm shooting a rifle and I got a target that's a thousand feet away and I have wind, terrible wind in, in Dealey Plaza, which they had, it's a decline. The car's moving. You have signs, trees, a lot of variables that you have to take into consideration. Besides, if I'm a shooter, I have to arrest my heart below 60 because the pulse is in my finger. And I have to make sure I have everything calmed down before I take a shot. 
And you're telling me that I'm taking four shots with a bolt action rifle in 28 seconds? That's impossible. Mm-hmm. Never happened. Plus, there was a police station right across the street from the bird building. There were guys in a cell looking straight at that window. There were three guys in the window. Two of them were dark-complected Cubans. Oswald wasn't even there. So the whole thing was a joke. There's no way that somebody shot. First of all, the first guy that got shot was Conley. And Conley fell down in between the seats. He fell right in front of Kennedy. Kennedy got shot in the throat the first time. He saw his hands rump up to his throat and he fell forward. Then he was shot in his lower back. No one talked about that for 10, 15 years later. And the last shot came from the driver. He hit him, turned, and, and took a shot that, that you see him, his head goes backwards and blows the back of his head up. Greer. And Greer admitted that on his deathbed. Wow. But the media sold you on the one bullet theory. Mm-hmm. That it went through this guy's wrist and into Kennedy. And, and how do you how do you shoot a shot from a thousand yards behind the guy? He's behind Kennedy. How do you shoot that shot and make his head go backwards? I yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It never made any sense. You understand? Yeah. So if you look at the Zabruder footage, the Zabruder footage sees you see the you see Greer turn and and take the shot that hit him in the forehead. And when they got him to the hospital, they pulled the skin up on his forehead and it covered it up and took a picture of his face. It's all, you know, it was all hocus pocus. So why the president of the United States, why are you lying so much about all the things that happened? Because the guy who orchestrated that whole thing was a man called the Jackal, Carlos Sanchez from Europe. He was the most prominent hit guy Europe ever had, and the, and, the, and the bankers of Geneva sent him to America. That was the first job he ever did in America. He's the guy with the umbrella in Dealey Plaza. And I met him and talked to him. I knew him. So, they, you know, it, it's just the, the, the stories and the way that the media covered and the way it was pumped out and what they wanted people to believe is sad how gullible people are. So can you tell me when we'll be able to see this, see your version of it? Or is that still too far in the plan, in the planning no, stages? In the book, I wrote a book. It's already okay. in it. Awesome. The book is Family Legacy. You want to get it? Go to familylegacythenovel.com. Takes you right to Amazon. We're getting ready to make a movie out of it. Awesome. I'm going to make sure that goes in the show notes. And I would... truth, it's time to tell the truth about some things. You understand? I do. You know, it's not that. It, why? Why should you be embarrassed to understand the truth of your of your nation, your country? You know, Jack Kennedy was was a great politician. It's unfortunate his father led a lot of his deals down the street. And you have to go back to the beginning with Joe Kennedy to understand why he was like that. He was not a nice guy. No, he was not. And and it started back in Prohibition. His he married. Joe Kennedy was a very, very bright banker. He was the youngest president of a bank in the history of America because of Honey Fitzgerald, his father-in-law, was a gangster from Ireland, but he was the first senator of Massachusetts. He owned the harbor. He owned, he, Honey Fitzgerald was a clever man, and he controlled all the booze out of Scotland and Ireland. And when he brought it into America, Joe Kennedy took it up into Canada 
And along with a guy that owned Fleischman's Liquor from Newark, New Jersey, they had a warehouse up there and they were bootlegging liquor down into America. All known facts. Okay. Mm-hmm. But there was one load of booze that was supposed to go to a group called the Purple Gang. And Joe Kennedy's guys hijacked it. And the Purple Gang said, you know, Sonny, you're a dead man. Because they, they were killers, stone killers. Great group of guys. I knew two of them. And he ran to his father-in-law. How do I get out of this mess? He said, I can't help you. The only one guy can help you. He's in Chicago, Joe Esposito. You got to go sit down with him and talk to him. He went out and sit down with this guy. The guy said, you know, kid, you're a great earner. Here's the deal. You go back to Boston. I'll take care of the Purple Gang. But you belong to me now. You belong to us. So they had him under thumb in Chicago. The only money that Joe Kennedy ever put into a building in America was a mercantile building downtown Chicago because they made him they made him build it. Mm-hmm. They sent him to Hollywood. They introduced him to Randolph Hearst, who owned the newspapers out here. Mm-hmm. He, if you look underneath the underneath the, the carpet, he put together RKO Studios distribution deal by putting mm-hmm. all the Jewish theater owners together and making the first distribution. Joe Kennedy was responsible for that because the, the union was owned. The cinematographers union was controlled from Chicago. We owned the industry out here. Mafia controlled the industry pretty much. And Joe Kennedy did a lot of things that he was told to do. Made a lot of people angry. And then in 1926, they went to him because when we got out of the, after the first world war, America became a war bearing country. We started manufacturing war goods. We were taking jobs away from Europe. Europe was a little bit ticked off because they financed our country. They underwrote the country. And they weren't getting their money back enough fast enough. They felt. And now that we're a war-bearing country, we're taking jobs and, and, and income away from them. So they started jumping up and down. So there was a place called the Hamilton Club in Illinois. It was like a, a, a political stronghold. And they grabbed Joe Kennedy and they said, we want you to do something for us. And he created a short sale one day and he stole $5 million from Pathé Newsreel and nobody ever saw it. And they said, now that's pretty clever. So they started to arrange a short sale against 30 companies in Europe. One of the companies was owned by Blackjack Bouvier, who was Jackie Kennedy's father and her uncle and all, but that was a Rothschild company that they ran, a bank. 1928, this short sell was all put together by the end of 28, going into 29, and they Joe Kennedy instigated it. <clears throat> and the first week they were very successful. They were they they were stocks were falling, jumping up and down. The market was going crazy. They took off a couple of days off. They were coming back the following week to finish it. And the company the country panicked and went into what you call what we know as the crash. They didn't deliberately do that. It just was a remnant of it. But Kennedy got all that property he owned up in the East Coast. He, I mean, they, they were buying stuff 10 cents on the dollar, penny on the dollar. And the crash and, and, and the short sell worked very well against 30 companies in Europe. And they bankrupt 30 companies. And when it was over, the government, the president said to Joe Kennedy, that's a very nice job, kiddo. So here's what we want you to do now. We're going to make you head of the SEC because you're going to have to rewrite all the laws of the SEC because they knew Europe had to reinvest in the country to get their money back. And they wanted to do it under their terms. 
So Joe Kennedy rewrote and he became the head of the SEC. 1935, when that was all finished, they said, great job, kid. Now we'll make you ambassador to England. Some people sat him down before he went over there and they said, listen up, sonny boy. When you go to England, there's some friends of ours we want you to put together over there. We're going to tie some knots pretty tight. First guy he sat down was a Shah of Iran. And they put a bank together. Shah of Iran's a gangster. You knew a lot of people in our country here. A lot of people mm-hmm. in the mountain know. And he put a bank together and they lent money to Hitler. But Joe Kennedy didn't think there was anything wrong with that because we weren't in the war. War was against Europe and Germany. America wasn't in it yet. Right. And he was making money off of it. And they took the money they lent to Hitler. Hitler came back to the same crew and they added a guy called Khashoggi and they were buying weapons. And when England found out, they grabbed Joe Kennedy and said, whoa, man, what do you think you're doing? You're giving money to our enemy. You're giving them weapons. And they threw him out of England. But no one ever said why he was actually thrown out. He came home as Ambassador Joe Kennedy. And because the Gore family owned the papers in the East Coast, and they were from Indiana, and Hearst family owned the papers on the West Coast, and there was no television, so no one ever put or printed or said a word about why he was thrown out of England. He just came back as Ambassador Joe Kennedy. Yeah. You understand? I do. No I love my history. I absolutely love history. And for me, that's what this is. And, and the guy that he wanted to be president first was his son, Joe, the oldest boy. Mm-hmm. And Joe was a brilliant pilot. Great guy. Good guy, man. He would have been a great, great guy to run for president. And the bankers of Geneva and the people of Europe put together this plan they were building a plane that was going to fly into the German munition factories and end the war, like a kamikaze plane, you know? Mm-hmm. So they built this plane, but they needed someone to test pilot it. So they talked Joe Kennedy Jr. into doing that. And he thought that was a great thing. Oh, man, I'll test, sure, I'll test pilot. It was, he was out of the service. 11 days he'd have been in America. He was already done. They got him to test pilot this plane. The plane blows up and kills Joe Kennedy. Boom, dies. A week later, they scrapped the whole thing. Think that wasn't a plan? First son's dead. Mm-hmm. First son's dead. Then they kill his second son. And, and, and his second son, the people say, well, why would you think it's Joe Kennedy? Why would he do that to you? That's a, that's a cold statement. But look what he did to his daughter. His daughter suffered from ADD before anybody knew what to do with ADD people. And he was afraid she would embarrass him somewhere in public or this at a, at a function. So he lobotomized her. She sat in an institution all her life looking out a window. Mm-hmm. You know that? I did not know that. His own daughter. Look it up. That's in history. I'll do it. His mm-hmm. daughter sat in an institution all her life until she died. He lobotomized his own daughter. So... His son being killed the way he got killed down in Texas, he would rather see him die that way than die from a disease and mark the family. You understand? That makes sense. It fits the pattern. So, you know, these are things no one ever looked at. No one ever looked at it. And it's just, you know, one thing after the other. And then Bobby went after all his good friends. He's after Gene Connor because they had him under thumb out there for so long. And he wanted out from underneath of that. 
So he put his son Bobby on him to lock everybody up. Jack, I this is fantastic, and I absolutely love this. I am, have a hard conflict coming up that I have to make. Yeah. So I've got to wrap this up, but I would like to get back to this and maybe have you on again sometime soon. Sure. So we can have another chat. Yeah, positively. Absolutely. Uh, so you mentioned your website. Is there another place people can keep tabs on you on the internet, or is that going to be it? Uh, yeah, familylegacytonovel.com is probably a good place. Or you just Google me. I mean, I'm all over the place. Absolutely, absolutely. I'll put all that in the show notes. Thank you so much for this. I, I have been fascinated by everything you've been saying. Have a good day, my friend. You as well. Take good care. I would really like to thank Jack for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. We got into a lot of historical talk during this episode, so I would be remiss if the geek resource for this episode wasn't dancarlin.com. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History Podcast is a fantastic history resource for anybody who likes podcasts, likes drama, or likes history. Any of the above, check out dancarlin.com. For the community-building part of the show today... Please go ahead and if you are a member of a forum, whether that is on Facebook or a web forum or an email group, if you think they would be interested in today's episode, please drop a link to it. If you don't want to link to the podcast itself, you can use one of the YouTube links off of my website, www.aaronbossig.com. And if you just want to reach out to me, reach out to bossigpodcast at yahoo.com. Thanks so much and we'll see you next time.